You got the cute way of walking. You got the better of me. How's that? <laughs> hey, welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. I'm your host, Stevie Taylor. This is episode 107. Leo Sayer, here we go. Today is Leo Sayer. Leo needs no introduction, really, so I'm going to keep this intro brief so we can rip into the conversation. I mean, you know the songs. You make me feel like dancing when I need you more than I can say. Thunder in my heart, and the list goes on. You just got to Google him, and you'll find everything you need to know about his extremely impressive career. We're going to talk about the making of some of these songs, working with the best of the best LA studio musicians through the 70s and 80s, as well as a whole bunch of other stuff. Look, I'm already talking too much. Ladies and gentlemen, it's with the great honour that I bring you this chat with the one, the only, Mr. Leo Sayer. Let's kick it off. So um, I think we're rolling. Leo Sayer, welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. Hello, mate. A pleasure to be here. <laughs> mate, stoked you're, stoked you're here. Um, no, it's an absolute pleasure. We're not in the same room together. I'm in Sydney and you're, you're down the Southern Highlands. Is that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm in Berrimah, which is, uh, you know, near Barrel um, and deep in the Southern Highlands. And, you know, I've got the joy of living in a little village here um, where we only have 400 people. Amongst them is Jimmy Barnes yep. and his daughter Mahalia. They live here as well. So I, I see Jim a lot. I suppose there's quite a few musicians around here, um, and uh, yeah, we, we, we're very blessed to be in um, a quiet area during this CV time, yeah. and of course with uh, COVID time. And yeah. and uh, as you know, I've got my own studio here, so that's the yeah. joy I can work, you know, on on stuff here. So uh, this year is not going idle for me, even if we can't tour, I that's can right. still do lots of work, which is great. Yeah. And be- before we hit record, you gave me the virtual tour. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to quickly turn these fans off because you might be getting a humming in the background. There. Now that should be good studio silence. Beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now I want to give a shout-out to Gordy Ripmeister. Um, Yes, my good mate, Gordy. (laughs) Yeah, Gordy Gordy contacted me a couple of days after Christmas. Send me a message, yeah. We we, we were actually working on on the Christmas carols show it was very weird this year because they couldn't have an audience and um i was really pleased to see as he's all he's nearly always in the drum chair um but i walked over and there's my old mate gordy and you know we played so much uh, in the past i mean i usually play live with mark kennedy who's yep. another person you've got to get on this and i'm going to be trying to man him. i've been if you can if you can uh, if can you can make instantly oh. he's ready we talk every day we're, we're very very close and he's, the stories he has of all the records he's been on from Max Merritt to, to Brian Cadd to, to, um, to, to Billy, you know, to, uh, to oh, just everyone, so, you know, so he's much. legend. 
Yep. And he'll have some amazing, amazing Australian recording stories. I don't yeah, have many Australian recording stories. I've got a few, you know, but, uh, <laughs> over the years, but mostly it's been America and England, you know. Yeah, well, if you can hook that up with me and Mark, that would just be yeah, great. Yeah, it's done. That'd, I was going to call awesome. him today and, and you put you guys together on email. And, Fantastic. And phones, awesome. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd really appreciate that. Um, yeah, so what I thought we might talk a bit about, we'll talk a bit about um, how COVID's been to you and, and – um, what you were doing leading up to to COVID, and then what sort of got blown out. Um, talk a little bit about that, and then we can roll back. Talk about some some of your early stuff, and I want to talk to you about your days in the you know the the US studios playing with you know yeah, the, the big the American eighties. Yeah, 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 man. Cool. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. so yeah, t- t- how um. What, yeah, what were you up to just leading up to COVID and, and what's well, sort of um, um, we started the year, you know, uh, I, I don't know if you know John Waters, the guitarist and actor, you know, who uh, yeah. John, my year started off like on Christmas Day when John called me and the bushfires were going on and said, look, um, I think we should do something about this because me and he are quite close. He lives in Robertson um, in, in New South Wales and he's got a great mate who's like head of one of the local fire, uh, the local RFS, you know, local rural fire service. Um, And he's one of the heads and he had him there for his Christmas dinner table. And uh, they're phoning me and they're saying, Leo, let's put on a show. So the year started on January the 7th where we're doing a bushfire show. Mm. Um, And that was in Barrel. We had had an amazing turnout. We had Daryl Braithwaite, John Paul Young, uh, Jeff Duff, amongst many others who came and played for us. It was quite incredible. Um, so that's how the year started with the, with the bushfire. And then I was um, due to go to play some shows in England and Ireland. So I was kind of halfway through an Irish tour. Uh, we did about four or five shows over there, and we were in Limerick on the way to Cork, uh, right down the bottom, when the Irish government said, right, no more gatherings over 200 people. It's too dangerous with the pandemic. So I had to hot foot it back to England, um, to back, um, yeah, and then back to back to Australia. I waited mm. by Heathrow Airport for a for a plane, um, and basically got on that. And then I was my lovely partner Donatella out here in the Highlands. Um, I didn't have to do the hotel lockdown, so I, I got out of that. Right. But it meant that we postponed the Irish, the rest of the Irish tour, which was um, Cork, Dublin, and Belfast. Now, we're supposed to pick those up in September, and fingers crossed, of course, we can fly. I mean, I'm hoping that we can get a, I can get a vaccine so I can be safe to be there. The, it's all an English band there, um, English crew, English gear, you know, it's all an English, English and an Irish promoter. So, you know, everything's just, it's just me going over and, and joining them for that. And then after that, I've got a British tour in October. And then I work with, I don't know, you know, Jules Holland, the, the mm-hmm. keyboard player. Yeah, I'm doing Jules's tour as well. So as a oh, guest fantastic. of Jules, which is, that means like um, four nights at the Albert Hall in, in November, which is going to be bloody stunning. That's me and Lulu again doing that one. Right. So, um, right. and um, yeah, Chris Difford from Squeeze and, you know, a few old friends. And of course, everybody in, in his band is awesome. So, um, yeah, so I've, I've, I, that's been postponed from last year. So this, this is the effect of COVID, and my British tour has been postponed as well. So hopefully that all goes on. 
But that's the live side. I mean, I have a band in Australia, which is mm. Bill Risby, who you know, Mark Kennedy on drums, mm-hmm. uh, Mitch Cairns on bass, who's also produced Russell Morris, you know, in yep. the park. Um, and Paul Burton, obviously amazing Sydney guitarist who everybody knows, who does all the Let It Be and the Beatles shows as well as me, you know. Um, so so I have a fantastic, just four guys, but it's an amazing band, um, half in Melbourne, half in Sydney, you know, uh, because Mitch and, Mitch and Mark are in Melbourne and, you know, we have this joke that the stage is split in half and the Sydney side, <laughs> it actually looks like it. It's, it's like, yeah. and we, we sometimes put a line down and we go Sydney, Melbourne. <laughs> Yeah, because Bill Bill faces he faces he he's um side if on, you're looking he? onto the stage yeah um then look left and you'll see far left and you'll see Bill yeah and he tends to face in because we have a kind of horseshoe effect um okay. and then next over is 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 Paul Burton who's back a little bit because of the volume of the guitars you know it's just just that kind of thing so we don't have to screen them off. And then there's a kind of gap in the middle where my harmonica amp is and a few things like that. And then um, <laughs> and then next you come to Mark Kennedy facing in kind of slightly at an angle and then Mitch Cairns on the end. And Mitch and Bill and Paul all sing as well. So, you know, we got microphones up for them. So, you know, and, and, they, and they love doing it. I never even knew Bill Risby could sing until one day he just suddenly said, give me a microphone, and that was it. Bang. <laughs> That's typical Risby surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just want to – I probably we're going to bounce around a bit if that's okay. Yeah, no, no, there's absolutely. No, there's, yeah, no, yeah. there's no structure to this. Um, I was going to ask you a little bit later about harmonica, your harmonica playing and, and a little cool. bit of the technique and stuff and that, but I just want to mention there was a, a performance that I saw on YouTube, I think it was yesterday, and it was yourself and Bill, and you're playing on a – it was a morning TV show. Yeah, that's and, right. Um, yeah. yeah, and uh, just just I, mean, the I, mean, I did the harmonica solo. Yeah, yeah. Yes, what I wanted to, because because we just talked about Bill. Then I I, I want to talk a little bit about the your harmonica technique there. Now you just you had this thing where you're playing the harmonica with one hand, and as you're playing, you're fanning the microphone. Fanning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, an old yeah, folky never, trick. Uh, oh, in I've fact, never seen that before. There's a great singer in America. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Demo- I could go and get a harp and demonstrate. No, but it's but it's, <laughs> used to do that. Look, I mean, some of the show I play through a microphone, um, you know, a, a dedicated microphone, a, a, um, a crystal mic, which then yep. goes into uh, a very clever box, which uh, allows me to get a really distorted Chicago sound. Sometimes it goes into an amp. I use a Fender Blues Junior as well. I find that's the the one that breaks up those those double six AV valves. Those are, those are the ones, nice. <laughs> AVAs. Um, but um, but but uh, and and I, and I use a kind of noise filter on it. So I use that on some of the songs, like that's on when I need you and things like that to, get, to kind of like try and emulate something that's close to the, the the kind of position of a hot of a of a sax would be, you know, in that which was like yeah. in the original record. Um, yeah. And then I do a lot of songs just acoustically, you know. So I'm just using the mic that I've got. Um, which is a very clever DPA mic, by the way, um, right. and um, a very special one that I've got. Um, uh, but it's but um, I'm, I basically, yeah, you use a lot of technique, so you can be fanning the the, the the mic, closing it harmonica, closing the harmonica down, so you get this muted sound. If you 
Yeah. Look at old Sonny Terry and Brandon McGee. Sonny Terry used to do all this and, and uh, you know, Sonny Boy Williamson, all those guys, you know, they, they had this, you know, it's, you, you get, it's a bit like a wah-wah on a guitar, really. Yeah. It's changing, it's filtering the sound, you know. So, so basically it's changing the tone. So you deaden it down by cupping the mic, cupping the, you know, the, sorry, cupping the harmonica before the mic, you know, so it's getting a more sort of tighter sound and then you open it up, you know. But, I mean, I grew up playing harmonica. Um, okay. I used to play in folk clubs and I used to busk on the streets, um, played with some really good, you know, folkies. I played with Donovan and, and um, um, you know, lots of, lots of Bert Yanch and people like that. And I would just sit in, again, with blues singers, Joanne Kelly, all these people in England. So, um, uh, you know, John Martin I used to play with. Um, so, you know, when, when the folk scene was going in the 60s, and, and that's how I learned my technique, and I don't know how it first came. I started playing when I was at school. I used to take a train, and I'd play along to the train, you know. You know, you play a rhythm to the train. So, um, so that's where all that started, and, and that led me to go into bands. I was a commercial artist. I was a graphic designer in my yeah. train. Yep. Um, but in my spare time, um, you know, I used to kind of sit in with bands in London. And I've got to tell you, I mean, I'm not name dropping, but I played with, you know, most of the Stones. Uh, yep. I played with Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce and, and all those Zoot Money and uh, Georgie Fame. Played one night with John McLaughlin when he was playing with Georgie Fame, you know. So we'd sit in with all those bands, the Graham Bond organisation. Ginger and, and Jack were the bass and, and drums there. And I played with Charlie Watts and Bill Wyman quite a lot when they would play with Alexis Corner as well, you know, as a pickup section. Um, so I kind of knew a lot of people in the business, but I didn't want to get involved in it really professionally because everybody seemed to get ripped off. That was the, <laughs> that was the way it was in the 60s. You know, all those, those English bands and English acts, they, they were all penniless. You know, they never made a – they would always have Svengali managers. So, uh, you know, who'd kind of rip them off. Look at this story of the animals and, and, and them and all of And, you know, you could go back to the Stones and all of those people. So, you know, it wasn't a kind of, it was an, it was an industry where people would take advantage of young guys. That was basically what it was. So, so I stayed away from it as long as I could, but um, I found I was getting in trouble art-wise. My concentration was going and I was getting desperate and I needed money. So I sort of pretty much uh, was at the bottom of the barrel. And one day I had a nervous breakdown and um, I was in London, got out of the studio, uh, tried to pay off uh, most of the guys that were working for me because I had a bunch of artists working for me. And I went and lived on a houseboat for a year. And on the houseboat was another guy who played guitar and I found out a whole bunch of my old school friends now were in, this was the time of the blues bands like Eric Clapton and John Mayall and Peter Green and, you know, um, uh, 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 you know um, Chicken, Chicken Shack with Stan Webb and, uh, you know, it was all that kind of time, that early English blues scene. It was all of us wearing duffel coats and, you know, scruffy hair. And I kind of joined in. I joined in on all of that scene, you know, Ainsley Dunbar band and all that stuff. Right. And we had a little band, uh, I think we were called Terraplane. And, um, you know, I went to uh, – and then I jammed with a band called Jelly Bread that had Pete Wingfield, who was the keyboard player, very famous muso in England, and he gave me a few tips and everything. So, so basically all of a sudden I was working in a factory, living on this houseboat, and in a, every weekend was playing with the band. And it got more and more serious, you know. 
So I, I answered an audition, um, which was held by my co-writer, a guy called David Courtney. And then he used to work for Adam Faith, who was a pop singer in the 50s and 60s. And Adam signed me up and we went off and made the records. And that's how it all started, really. Wow. From the harmonica onwards. You know, it, it's it's um well documented, you know, your 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 story. So yeah, I wanna like go into all of that. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So I wanna find little gaps in there that we can stop sure, and, and absolutely. talk about. And the first the first thing that kind of come to mind is like was it like a meteoric rise? Like once once you got once you record once you got to that point where you where you'd recorded that music, did you have any idea at that stage, um, just kind of how <laughs> how big it was going to get? And and, and no, what not at all. This is, not this at is all. kind of and a it's kind of a multi pronged question question where you know once it did start to go, how long did it sort of take? And did you realise what was happening? Well, it was meteoric because Adam was so powerful. He okay. had he was so highly respected in I mean look the first the first day I met him, the second day he says, Right, you're coming to lunch with me. There's a thing called the RAC, the Royal Automobile Club, where everybody had to dress up in ties and everything like that to even get in the door. <laughs> so he took me to lunch there and he says, I've got a special guest for you. I'm not telling you who it is. He was a rough old cockney like that, you know. And in walks Paul McCartney. And he said, you know, do you want any? Uh, do you want any advice? And I said, Well, yeah. I mean, what mic do you use? What? <laughs> and he wouldn't tell me any of that. He said, Nah, you've got to find all that out for yourself. He just said, Don't cut your hair. Don't cut your uh, hair. <laughs> he said, The look is good. Just stick with that. So I didn't. Yeah, well, yeah. I didn't get much out of him. But Adam's influence, anyway. I mean, we would walk up to the big radio session. Uh, um, uh, you know, at Radio One in England, the BBC. Yeah. And, he, you know, you're not supposed to walk in there at all during a show going on. He would just walk through the door. You know, all the all the jobs worth who stood at the door knew him anyway. So, oh, Mr. Faith, of course, come this way. So, you know, we'd walk straight in and we'd be on live on air. And he said, take that rubbish off. He'd say to the DJ, put this on this new Leo Sear. Here he is. This is Leo Sear. So it was like one of those old kind of spinal tap kind of stories, the whole thing. <laughs> So it, it happened so fucking quickly. It was ridiculous. I mean, you know, within four or five weeks, I had a record out. We were starting on the new album, the first album. Uh, the first album kind of got curtailed because we, uh, you know, we went to Roger Daltrey's studio, Roger of the Who, the Who, and, you know, started recording there, put his album out first, and mine came out a year later. So that took a little bit of time, but I hit the ground running, and, and Adam made me do a 1,000 shows. He counted them all down, 1,000 shows. I would back Procol Harum, Chicken Shack, Jethro Tull, um, all these bands. You know, I'd be the opening act, the small faces, everybody. You know, I, it was just an incredible baptism of fire. Nobody knew who I was. I wasn't wearing my famous clown makeup. The first album yeah. hadn't come out. They didn't know who I was. So, you know, basically... We'd either we'd either succeed or get pelted off stage, you know, with rotten tomatoes or small beer bottles or something, you know. But it was a learning curve, you know, and and it taught me a lot about. I mean, I worked with some pretty good musicians in those days. I got to say, even though they were as amateur as me, they they could play. So I started to learn about you know how to direct a band, and that was my one of my first skills. That later got me into really good shape in the studio because. Um, after making the first couple of records where I didn't really know very much, 
when I got to America and worked with Richard Perry, in the time that I, you know, got to working with Steve Gadd, Jeff Beccaro, Larry Carlton, Michael Mardian, Greek Fillingains, Lee Sklar, you know, Russ Kunkel, all these guys. When I got to working with them, I, I kind of knew how to kind of influence things in a sort of band type of setup. It became very useful in the studio. So I could say to somebody and get away with it, why didn't you play something like this? And, and they'd pick up on the lines. So even though I don't really play an instrument other than the harmonica, I, could, I found out that I could direct things. Mm. And I suppose what's been also lucky, I've got perfect pitch. So, wow. you know, if I sang a line, it, 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 would, it would come, you know. And, I mean, I can even, if I start a singing a song now, it'll end up, it, it'll be in the same key that it, I sing it live, you know. So I was I've got this elephant's memory of a of a pitch control, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting you say that about um how how you were in the studio with sort of directing the musicians because that was something I was going to ask you because you know being a being an artist, you know, there'd be a producer in the studio mm-hmm. um yeah, I I was I was curious as to is it the producer sort of well, doing all the all the organizing or no but it, it's it's well, cool yeah, to hear I mean, that on on those american albums from endless flight 1976 on three albums were made with richard perry now richard perry was a my god he was a god of a producer you know he was up there i mean you know he did carly simon's you're so vain he was the he did all the ringo star albums he's the last person to actually get all of the beatles in the studio at the same time on one of ringo's tracks so, you know, and he, the original Steely Dan records, that was him. He was their first producer. Um, he worked with Zappa. He worked with everybody, you know. So he was a pretty powerful figure. And, you know, when I first met him, we were at Loggerheads. We were in disagreement because I wanted to do my own songs and he wasn't interested in me as a songwriter. He just wanted to kind of, he, he loved the voice. So the voice for him was an instrument. So I was kind of like a Jackie Wilson or something like that, you know, a, one of these kind of sweet voices, you know, and he just, a sweet soul voice, you know. So he wanted to kind of marry me with some great players and, you know, create an album which was in his mind more than in mine. So when we got started, we had this huge dis- disagreement and I actually left for the airport. And uh, and then he called me back. He said, Leo, Leo, reconsider, man. I, I, I really wanted to make this work, you know. And I said, well, you weren't my first choice as producer. I wanted to work with Jerry Wexler, you know, not you. And I was really ornery, you know. But um, <laughs> but he, he he just persuaded me to come back. And I, the limo turned around on the way to the airport. My wife Janice, my ex-wife Janice, with me. We, so we turn around. I'm going, oh, let's give it a chance. Yeah, again, we can we can hold back the flight home for another day to England, you know, from LA. Um, so we walk into the studio. And at the precise moment, look, he orchestrated this so well. At the precise moment, you know the song What Becomes of the Broken Hearted? Yeah. You know, so so the first beat is boom, dum, dum, as I walk this land. He, as I walk through the door, the, the drummer, and I can't remember who it was, but I got a, well, I'm, I can't remember. But uh, but the, the the guitarist was Ray Parker Jr. and you know the, the other guitarist was Larry Carlton and Ralph McDonald, I remember, was on Congas. And Lee Rittenau was also on guitar and this massive band. And I walk into the studio and as I open the door, come in, Lee. 
boom, boom. And I go straight to a microphone that was positioned only a few yards away from the door. It was just like a live session. And I went, as I walk this land of broken dreams. So we instantly found, because of Motown, I guess, I like Motown and he liked Motown, we found some kind of common ground. So we cut the Tears of a Clown reflections, which ended up on the album, and uh, what becomes of the broken hearted. So three classic Motown-style soul songs that came from that time. And um, that was how we started. Willie Weeks was on bass, I remember. Yeah, just uh, uh, these amazing musicians. And and they're all so nice, you know. I was, yeah. I mean, I should have been shit scared, really, because here's this this guy from England, and I'm working with, my God, the guys who work with Aretha, Aretha Franklin, you know, um, um, God, uh, you know, B.B. King, they... They'd work with everybody, all of my heroes, you know. Um, they were the band. And and mm. and I think on the second week, Jeff Picaro came in. Um, you know, this is years before Toto, but he is the number one player at this time. He's just been working with Michael Jackson the day before I did the session. So he's talking about Michael. And um, you know, and 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 I'm thinking, guy, this guy's really good. His time is just different to everyone else I'd ever played with. He's he's just so relaxed. He 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 looks like he's falling off the drum stool, you know, when he mm. plays. He he would sit so low and he had this little Gresh kit and he would sit off it really low and almost on the floor. But you know, all you could see was the wrist and the the body doesn't move and the rest of the his arms and legs were just flailing around, making this incredible sound. And I just thought, boy, now that's what you call a drummer. So I was also not only being able to, not intimidated by these guys, you know, able to kind of say, like say to Larry Carter, why don't you try that? And he actually, yeah, that's a good idea, Leo. And I'm thinking, I'm getting away with this. I was also <laughs> at school because suddenly you're learning from people who have such skills way ahead of anybody I'd played with in England before that you know, and way ahead of the abilities of the guys in my own band. So I was kind of, I was, I was up such a, uh, you know, such a climb up the ladder from the bottom rung to the top rung, you know, instantly. And i got to say, uh, it became very prolific with those sessions. We had some amazing musicians come in through the door and walk out. We had amazing songwriters come in as well and giving me songs. We had two guys from Elton's band, David Johnson and, and um, Nigel Olson. We had uh, James Newton Howard playing keyboards with us, who now is one of the biggest scorers of music, you know, for films uh, known to mankind. And we had just amazing players. Abel Boreal came in on the second album playing bass, and, man, what a player he was mm-hmm. in his lovely old Mexican Goya bass that he was playing at first, modded heavily with decent pickups on it and a, and a, and a fender neck. But, you know, basically a very humble guy who basically just walked in from Mexico one day and just played better than anybody else. So Richard knew how to book the A-team. He knew how to book the best players and he knew how to get them, you know, where I had Stevie Wonder's backing singers, um, Mm. which became very interesting because one of the days after I was recording with them, they said, hey, you know, um, let's introduce you to Stevie. So I immediately go to Stevie's studio um, over at SIR, over the other side of town. And he says, I've got these new songs and I'd love you to sing on them because the girls had played him something that I'd done. And so I'm wow, this is Stevie Wonder. So I'm singing back up on Love's In Need Of Love Today, you know, with those girls. That's me on the record. 
So, wow. so there were things like this that would happen, you know, and I'm I'm guessing playing with Billy Swan, playing harmonica because, you know, we, he shared the engineer with me and, and I, I played on an album with that Steve Cropper was producing and, you know, so all, I, I, we were all off doing other things. And, and basically, uh, as 1977 overtook 1978, uh, 1976, um, Jeff, we brought in a guitarist called Steve Lukather, and um, and I thought he was really great. So my mate Boz Skaggs was looking for a guitar, so I got Steve a job with Boz Skaggs. So so and he loved me for that. So uh, the guys from Toto, David Hungate, the original bass player, Jeff Beccaro, Steve Beccaro, Jeff's brother, um, David Page, who had also been playing organ on my records, um, uh, and Steve Lukather became my backing band for a while. And one day they came to me and they said, look, we think we're going to be a band, but we want you to be our singer. And the problem was I was on Warner Brothers and they were on Columbia, CBS, Sony now, you know. So, uh, and, and my manager would never allow that. So I just had to say no. But the original Hold the Line is me doing the vocal. They took it off so that Bobby could, I mean, I love Bobby, Bob, so that Bobby could sing it, of course, and, and I right. think he did a better job than me. But that's me going, hold the line, love isn't always on time. You know, so <laughs> love that song. And I really wanted to, I thought maybe I could mix my career and be the singer in Toto as well, but nah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. So, But did you, when that, option came to you were you thinking no it's it's nice to have that option and you know we have these this obviously clashing contracts Mm-mm. or or was it something you were going actually I'm, I'm gonna look into this see if I can <laughs> it, 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 these are the things or, or that, is it, yeah they're very t- I mean look I had my own yeah. mission because I write my own songs and I always kind of every record that I've wanted to make ever has been something that I've constructed so as a songwriter and um, as an ideas person, you know, you you think up a concept for something. It's in your head and you want to follow that concept. And I always wanted to be original. So that's kind of, you know, always been the main driving force. But at the other side of it, I'm a singer that everybody seems to recognise. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a voice that the musicians love playing with. So um, they, they'll, they'll sometimes turn my head and I'll think, yeah, fuck it, I'll go and sing some Blood, Sweat and Tears songs or, or Toto <laughs> songs, you know. Um, it's always tempting to do that. Um, but mostly I stick to my own mission. And i I got to say, when people ask me what I, my favourite thing that I do, I've got to say it's writing songs. And I just love songwriting. You know, I love creating ideas. I love the uniqueness of that, you know, that nearly everybody I know that's a great singer uh, often almost has to do cover songs, you know. I don't. I mean, I do them as by choice, um, you know, every now and then. I mean, we covered... Uh, last Christmas we covered um, Happy Christmas, War Is Over, which I sing at the carols show when Gordy's on drums. Um, but, you know, we decided just, oh, come on, we all love that song, let's do it. So I'll do a cover every now and then when I need to, but my main mission in life is to create my own songs. The ideas are in my head, I've got to get them out. Yeah, well, you've got the space for it now. That's true, that's true. Well, yeah. I, I, I've, I've lucked into finding this amazing house where I am now. So I have this fantastic barn and I've kind of, with the help of Damien Young, I must say, great engineer, who live engineer who works with me, together uh, he's with Pony, he's got a place called Pony Music, the studio he runs in, in Melbourne, 
in Hallam in, in, in Victoria, really. Um, and Damien and I both designed this place so that I could be owner, operator, engineer, and the lot. You know, it's very simplified. There's not much outboard gear. Mostly it's everything is in the box of the computer. Um, but, you know, I'm able to do pretty much everything myself. And I always kind of, I always thought that I'd like to make an album completely by myself. Um, it's a very stupid challenge for somebody who's got um, a chance to phone up the best musicians in the world. But, <laughs> but, I, but I went for it because I thought, well, Vincent van Gogh doesn't get someone in to do the blues and the yellows, does he? You know, come on. So I, I, I went for it and I created Selfie. And, and now I'm into the second project like this, which is a, a massive tribute to the Beatles album called Northern Songs. And um, I'm I'm in the I'm, I just finished off the last three of eighteen songs, but look, I'm very very lucky because I work with an amazing engineer, who used to be in England. He's John Hudson, and uh, John Hudson used to run Mayfair Studios in England, where the first Dire Straits record was, uh, all the Pink Floyd records. He he was the producer and engineer of Tina Turner. All those, what's love got to do with it? Or you know, all those songs recorded there. All the Brian Adams hits, you know, recorded there. Um, Tears for Fears, Sowing the Seeds of Love. You know, he's he's just engineer Parox excellence. I think one of the best in the world. Incredible mixing engineer. That's his greatest skill. So basically, what he does is he helps me finish all my tracks. And um, at the minute, we're working, um, you know, COVID pandemic style. Of we send stems to each other and we correct. Just been on the phone to him. I was sending him a graphic of where this song has to be muted and where the level has to drop um, oh, of yeah. a, a kalimba that I'd written into it. So you know, it's little details like that. But we, but we're getting there. We between us, we we go back and forth and send send stuff. You know, we we have. I've got a lot of lot of the gear that John uses. I've bought for him, so that that is my dedicated. I've got a big SSL rack. Of, of, of instruments and various things. We just got him a nice new Aurum High Def 55 EQ, probably the world's best EQ box in the world. You know, that's uh, stunning for, so that we can do the mastering ourselves now. So we do we do everything. It's me and John. We're a team. Do you, um, with that then, do you get um, other people in? Meaning do you record other people or other artists or this is Well, just we have done. We found an amazing... A Melbourne singer called Kiara Hunter, and we produced her. But halfway through, she changed her mind, and because she's young, and suddenly decided she wanted to be more like, um, you know, a young rapper or something. So her music style has completely changed. There's barely any chord movements any longer. But <laughs> but you know, it used to be she'd write these incredible songs on piano, and then I'd try and interpret them and and put virtual instruments into them. So one day she's going to turn around and, in fact, there's a song on um, Selfie called Don't Leave Me. It's the last cut on the album. And um, that's her song. And I just love that song so much. I had to do it. So, I mean, I don't know if I've had time to entertain producing anybody else, but I, I, I make the offers sometimes. There's a great little girl band I've met in Belfast, um, three girls who sing on the street, and they do things like Green Man Alishi, would you believe, and, and play it just like, I mean, the guitarist sounds like Peter Green, and, and mm. man, they're so good. So I'd lo- I want to produce them. So I'm trying to make innovations to say, "Hang on, you guys send me some tracks, and I'll I'll, I'll help embellish it, and we'll help make this really big." Because these girls, well, the girls are great looking as well. They've got everything, but at the present moment, they're buskers on the streets of Belfast. Mm. 
But, you know, so, so you, there is talent. I'd love to work with more talent. But at the moment, my time is completely filled up with all my own stuff, you know. Um, and this year, with the pandemic as well, I, I wanted to kind of say something about that because I have the ability here to make So I made a, a song called My City in Lockdown, um, all about Melbourne, which turned out to be just a rap, you know. Um, <laughs> Anders is looking like desperate Dan, but what can you do when there ain't no plan? So, you know, <laughs> I was doing that. And then I did another song called How Did We Get Here, which is all about, you know, how the virus started. So, and, and they're online, you know, I've put them out there. They're on YouTube and, 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 um, and Spotify and all those things. And, um, and you know, I, I, I can make videos here as well for them and things like that. So I'm kind of busy. <laughs> it sounds like keeping like myself busy. But look, I'm 70 yeah. years old. So if I stop, I'm going to bloody well fall over. So I can't <laughs> afford to stop, you know. <laughs> That's really cool. You really make it. will kill you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious as to how the whole Grammy Awards machine works, and I always have been. Mm-hmm. Um, you won Grammy Award. Can you explain what that machine is like? Did you have any idea you were going to get a Grammy Award? What was it like when you got no, the Grammy Award? No, it was – well, it, I mean, that started off – well, that was from Endless Flight. So yep. if that was in 1976. So this is the next year, 77, that you're up for the award. Um, and it was quite a surprise, really. But When I Need You, we thought was going to get the, the Song of the Year Grammy. It got nominated, but it, it didn't get there in the end, another song. I can't remember what it was. Something like Don't It Make Your Brown Eyes Blue or something like that got it, but uh, I was close. Um, but, but the other award was going for R&B Song of the Year, and, and that was for me and my co-writer Vinnie Poncier on You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. And so we were up for the composing, you know, award for that song. And I, ironically, um, David Page had been up for it the year before for Lowdown with Boz Skaggs right. and got it because they award is usually given away to black artists. You know, it's usually their fealty. So I remember being at the awards and I can't remember who it was, but somebody was kind of going on at me, you're stealing all our awards, man. And Smokey <laughs> Robinson came up to her and said, Nah, nah, Natalie Cole, I think it was. And, um, and, and, um, and Smokey said, no, he's as, he's as black as we are. He's as black as we are. He said, most people, when they heard you make me feel like dancing, in my community, he said, thought he was black anyway. So let him have it, you know. So I, I, we did get that award. I've got to say I was late to the Grammys, though. I, um, okay. I, was, I was flying in from England and I missed the award. And I sat down between <laughs> Junior Guitar Watson and... Count Basie, would you believe in that? Count Basie turned and said, son, you just bought yourself, you just won yourself a Grammy. And I went, what? <laughs> I didn't even know, you know, because I was rushed from the airport to sit down. The plane was delayed, you know, and got there halfway through the ceremony. But that was a lovely feeling, you know, to, to be a Grammy winner. But like you say, the way it works is, is these days it's very much an inside kind of thing. I think that the members of the Academy um, very much vote between themselves. Hey, who are you going for? Um, hey, <laughs> I mean the other thing I remember that 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 about that year was that was the year when Fleetwood Mac um, uh, picked up all the awards for Rumours, right? So basically, they picked up a truckload of it. And I remember going to we went to the awards party with Warner Brothers, so I'm on the same label as them um, in America. 
And uh, Mo Austin, who was the head, came up and said, hey, Leo, isn't it great about Fleetwood Mac? You're going to win one of these things one of these days. And his second in command came up and said, he just did, Mo. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I mean, I don't pay too much attention to all of that awards side. I mean, I've never had an Ivan Novello award in England, which is the Songwriters Award. And I think, I, I, I mean, in a way, I, I should have done because, shit, I've written so many hit songs. Mm. But, you know, I, I, I'm out of that radar, really, I think, of those. There's a lot of people who play that game. They hang around with all the people who give the awards, you know, and they make sure that they're in the right, uh, you know, that they're, they're, they're recognised, you know, by it. Mm. But it hasn't, it hasn't done me any harm. <laughs> it's a nice thing to have under your name. I'm curious as to what sort of happens after that. Do, do you, is it, I mean, obviously you've got a Grammy, you, you, you're part of that now, but yeah. is it like a, is it almost like a membership type thing? Like well, you kept in the it, loop of things it, and. Not really, not really. Okay. In fact, my, my Grammy's broken and I keep asking them for a new one, but they want to charge me $750 every time <laughs> that I ask them. So, you know, they'll, they'll give you a new one, but you have to pay for it. Um, but here's an interesting thing. I did a gig in China about four or five years ago, just me playing with a, a band that was already there, and it was at the Olympic Stadium in Chengdu, and it was a Grammy Award winner's show. So, um, um, oh, God, what's his name? Um, well, it was Rodney Crowell, and uh, I can't remember all the other artists on it, but they were all massive um, yeah, all bigger names than me. I'm trying to remember his bloody name. Um, Michael, not Buble, uh, <laughs> the one with the really, oh, it will come to me in a minute. Anyway, he's, yeah, he's massive. So anyway, they had all these huge American stars. And when they are Michael Bolton. Michael Bolton. Michael Bolton. Michael Bolton. Got you got it. You got it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting guy. Um, and And so... When they asked the Grammy, you know, they did this big thing in China because, China, you know, um, um, America wanted to get the Chinese involved in the Grammys. That was the idea. So the head of the Grammys, and I can't remember his name either, um, uh, but he, he arranged it all personally, you know. So there's a massive show in the so 80,000 people in this stadium in Chengdu. And when they asked the, when they were pre-arranging it, um, all of they, they asked the Chinese, they said, well, who would you pick? And they said, Leo Sayer. And this guy had completely forgotten about Leo Sayer. I mean, I was, you know, like from another age or something. So um, they just had to book Leo Sayer. So begrudgingly, someone from the Grammys organisation called me and said, uh, Leo, would you like to come to China? I said, well, yeah. if I'm available, I was a bit busy, you know. And they said, well, it's a Grammy Award winner's show, Michael Bolton, um, you know, all these, all these artists. Um, you know, would you like to? And I said, yeah, okay. So they paid for the flight and got me over there. And, you know, I had a rehearsal with the band beforehand. So they knew all my stuff. An amazing band, mostly Americans actually in there who work in Beijing. But they knew all the songs, you know. So I went and sang three songs. And part of it was was singing more than I can say, which is absolutely massive out there in China. So um, at the end of the show, um they have me singing more than I can say. And they brought the whole cast on. You know, I had Michael Bolton be- beside me and I hand the mic to, to Michael and he goes, whoa, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, he did not want to do that. You know, I mean, that was, you know, this guy, this Leo Sarah guy, I mean, you know, he comes, 
you know, and I turned out to be the biggest act for the Chinese in there, so it was quite funny. <laughs> but since then, uh, Neil Portnell, Neil Portnell, that was the the guy at the head of the Grammys. But since then, he keeps sending me messages, man, and he he likes me now. So yeah. um, I don't know. So I could be doing something Grammy winners shows again. You just say I'm I'm not coming back unless you give me a new fucking award. Absolutely, I yeah. I paid seven hundred fifty bucks for it. One. It's broken. <laughs> it's in pieces. <laughs> oh, damn it. <laughs> oh. Yeah. The speaker's fallen off the record deck and, yeah. the, and the needle's yeah. gone somewhere. You know. Right. <laughs> um, so, so you've played with, you know, amazing drummers like Steve Gadd, Jeff Beccaro, Russ Kunkel, yeah. Yeah. Mark Kennedy, Nigel Olsen, list goes on and on. But to me, the most impressive, yeah, this is, this is pretty awesome. But you got to play with Animal. I did get to play with Animal, yeah. Yep. <laughs> I've, I, I, I have on my CV plays with the Wiggles and plays with the Muppets. <laughs> uh, now, I, I was very lucky in America when we were doing my very first tour there in 1974. We were in Philadelphia, and uh, we used to do this. A lot, a lot of the bands would do this show called the King, Blis- the King Biscuit Flower Hour. It was a traditional thing going back right to the 30s or 40s, a radio show. And um, so they, they invited me to be on it. And uh, so the idea is you go on with your live band and you go to the studio in Philadelphia, the PBS studios, public broadcast studios. And um, so I go in there and, you know, we play, we play this gig and it, it's fantastic. But halfway through the proceedings, I don't know after sound check or something, I find out that the Sesame Street is shot in the next studio. And I'm a, in, you know, since coming to America, I mean, we didn't have it in Australia. We didn't have it in England, Sesame Street. But the moment you get in there, you've got Grover, you know, and Big Bird <laughs> and all these cookie monster and all these kind of characters. Yeah. And I just fell in love with them. It was so, you know, I mean, I, stoners, you know, I mean, guys that yeah, yeah. smoked a lot of dope and took a lot of drugs <laughs> would just live off the Sesame Street, you know. Oh, man, yeah. want to get up in the morning, man. I just want to see yeah. Grover. <laughs> so it, it, it was a Muso's thing, and we all loved yeah. it. And, and I went yeah. next door halfway through the day and met Jim Henson, you know, who is the Muppets wow. and who yeah. is Sesame Street. And I, 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 we got on like an absolute house on fire. So I think I appeared in briefly in an episode, but we stayed in touch, you know, all yeah. the time. So when the Muppets came to England to do the Muppet show on TV, um, Jim contacted me and I was, uh, you know, he had me up there as they were setting up the whole thing. Leo, Leo, what, who do you think we should book, you know? Um, and his bosses, of course, uh, may, maybe again, this is a time when Leo wasn't, you know, the big, the big name. So I didn't get invited on to, 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 to appear on the show. But I did help him contact, you know, people like Rod Stewart and all these different mm-hmm. Bette Midler and people like that who, who were on the show, you know, so... So I became like a backroom boy on the on the Muppets show, and eventually a second series. You know, the producers from America and and England used to see me all the time. There, they'd just say, "Oh, for God's sake, put Leo on the show." And Jim would say, "I've been trying to do that since day one. You don't realise how good he is." So I did make my Muppets appearance in the end. And um, yeah, you know, I mean, backstage with them, I used to hang around with Frank Oz. Frank Oz does Animal, you know, and and Miss Piggy. And, you know, we'd always be fooling around. I, in fact, you know, I would sometimes puppet. Uh, I, I didn't do it on TV, but they taught me how to do the puppet. You know, the, you've got these little levers that lift the eyes, you know, yeah. so the animal's got an eyebrows. 
kind of go up. All this sort of all this stuff. You know, it was hilarious. But it's one of the nicest things, one of the nicest friendships I had in my life was with Jim. Jim died of cancer, sadly, and we lost him. He was an amazing man, amazing man. Um, I remember one one night in Los Angeles having dinner with him and Steve Jobs, would you believe? And that wow. kind of people that he knew. And Robin Williams was there as well. And having this incredible dinner with these three amazing characters. So, you know, that's the kind of circles that um, Jim moved in. He was a he was a more important person than people realize, you know. Mm-hmm. And he's the voice he's the voice of the of the frog, of course. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> and often imitated, but just never the same. Oh, that's like, right. You know, it just uh, gets there every time. <laughs> <laughs> Why are there so many? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to do not that again. Green. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're, you're. Um, I think you did, you did two or three songs on. Yeah, I've got, you, I've got to tell you, two guys from my English band were the, in the Muppets band as well. You know, oh, Les, right? Les Davidson, guitarist that I wrote a lot of songs with as well, was with me for about right. ten years. Um, he was he was the Muppets band guitarist, so they had a great, they used great players, really really yeah, great yeah. players, the best in England. Yeah. So um, you did you make me feel like dancing, and <laughs> I watched that I watched that YouTube clip, and that um, I, I don't know who came up with the concept of those dancing birds, but it was really <laughs> I I felt quite disturbed. It was like the Skeksis off the Dark Crystal way, eh? like they would dancing around and, and you, you, you're kind of coming out and dancing in between them. and It was all Jim. It was, really, it was really all cr- Jim, Jim's concept. Yeah. You know? I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. you know, chased by the bear up the tree for when I need you. Being That's a, funny. The lumberjack, you know. Um, and because yeah, they, they, were, they were your choir as well. They were yeah. your uh, backup singers. The, 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 <laughs> um, the dancers, the birds that were with me, were three of the major dancers. Uh, one of them, absolutely, I can't remember his name now, but he literally was the big star of the Royal Ballet. He right. was their top male dancer. He danced with Nureyev. He danced with all of, you know, an amazing guy. And he was he was the closest bird to me. He was the choreographer right. of birds as well. So, you know, it, right. look, it was sheer class, the whole thing. I mean, all through yeah. my life I got to work with really, really, uh, where have been, I, I look on my career in some ways of being in the right place at the right time. It was like that when, you know, Steve Gadd, um, and 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 Michael Amardian and and Chuck Rainey and um, Larry Carlton were sitting in the studio, waiting for Donald Fagan to come in to do a new Steely Dan track. And yep. Donald phones in the meanwhile Richard Perry and says, "I've got a mental block. Would Leo like to take the session?" So you know that's how you make me feel like dancing. It wasn't how it was born, but it's how we kind of ended up with the record because we married the original jam session, which had Picaro and, and Ray Parker yep. Jr. and, and Lee Rittenauer and, and Willie Weeks and all those guys. We married that with, the, with another version. It was the first time I think it had been done, really. I mean, two reels of tape and they're trying to get the timing by little yellow marks on them. But Steve Gadd's playing drums along to You Make mm. Me Feel Like Dancing and his timing is so good. Um, he felt really bad, I've got to say, about usurping Jeff. He said, how am I going to apologise to Jeff? <laughs> I said, I'll do it for you. I'll do it for you. So yeah, I phoned right. Steve, Jeff and I said, um, we're at the producer's workshop with Bill Schnee and we're putting down the drums. Um, 
He said, what do you mean putting down the drums? I said, with Steve Gadd. He said, fine, fine, carry on, carry on. <laughs> he was thrilled that Steve yeah. was there, you know, and they became great friends. Yeah. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode of the podcast. As you know, the Gig Life Podcast is free. You don't have to pay anything ever. But if you find the value in the Gig Life Podcast, you can donate or leave a tip. Go to thegiglifepodcast.com, click on that donate button, and give as little or as much as you like, and just know that anything you give will go back into creating great content for this podcast. All right, back to the episode. I I just want to give a shout-out and a mention to... um, Robin Flans and her book. Yes, yes. Um, she's a she's a great writer, Robin. Um, she's written many many books, and she's very she was very close to the Toto Boys, and particularly Jeff. And she wrote this beautiful book and invited me to be a part of it. Yeah, we were very close, me and Jeff, while we were working together. We got really, really, really close, and um, he lived just around the corner from me. So you know, we used to hang out a lot. And I don't know, our personalities match. He was a very lively guy very speedy like mm. me very excited about life um and just good to hang with you know and we, 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 we used to go to the movies together and you know we often we often dated a couple of birds together as well so right. <laughs> we'd have some fun and um right. <laughs> and in the studio you know i don't know there's something telepathic when we work together i was in a booth mm. um or or in this kind of like it's, it's almost an anteroom between the control room and the main studio and I had a big window, I had a little porthole window going into the studio, but I had a bigger window looking um, looking onto the control room. But I used to kind of position myself very near this porthole because right at the other side of that was Jeffrey looking at me. Right. So Jeff and I used to literally give each other cues. He would give, he would lift his head when he was going onto the ride symbol, would you believe, you know, for a bridge section or a chorus. And I would know to change my dynamic. And I've got to say, on Endless Flight, most of the vocals and on, and on Thunder in My Heart, most of the vocals are live and Jeff's performance is live. The two of us, they'd overdub a lot of the other stuff, but we two were like metronomes. You know, we worked together and, you know, he, he used to say to people, he said, I'm his favourite singer because basically the way we worked together was just fantastic. It was like telepathy, you know. Our timing was was such we we locked you know and that made us become great friends that's why they they wanted me in toto i mean it's jeff that lobbied for me he said i want my mate leo in there yeah that's cool that's really cool yeah it's very i'm very honored and i miss him a lot you know i often think of him um he was just one of those one of the great people i met in america amongst many others of course but but you know he he didn't deserve to go when he went because basically mm. he had so much more in him you know he he had a a sense of time and a sort of grace in his playing that was like no other. I think best drummer I've ever worked with. Sorry, Steve Gadd, but the best was Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) And Mark Kennedy. I'd have to apologise to Mark Kennedy because I'll tell you what, I rate Mark Kennedy as one of the greatest drummers I've played with as well. And he's here in Australia and he's a gem and his timing is outrageous. Great, great. These are these are drummers that singers love to work with. I bumped into Michael Jackson sometime along the thing, and I and we talked about Jeff. And Michael just said, "The guy is incredible." He said, "I just go into the." He said, "Usually I run through the song just me and Jeff together, you just to get the rhythm, get the groove." 
And that's how they, that's how they use. So he, he saw that as well. He had that as well. He, he, you know, Jeff was recognized by many people for that. Yeah. And yeah, still talked about today because here we are. Yeah. These guys have had an incredible influence on the way music is played now. I, I think that that period of like mid 70s to the first two years of the 80s are, are probably the most influential years of players, not only in America, in England mm. too. You think of people like Mark King, you know, bass player with level 42. You think of, um, you know, for musicians, uh, musicians, musicians we're talking about. Here. Yep. You know, you think of like Joe Sample on piano with with stuff, you know, and 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 you think of the, the bass players, Abla Boreal and, uh, mm. God, you know, so many amazing... Uh, who's the guy from Earth, Wind and Fire, you know? Um, um, Verdeen White? Y- yeah, yeah, Verdeen. Whoa! Some of these guys, yeah. you know, the Brothers Johnson, you know, uh, yeah. some of these guys, and you know, and Sly and Rufus and with Chucker as a singer, you know, they influence the way everybody performs now. I, I Every time I hear a new singer, a new girl singer with a band, in a funk band, it's Chucker, you know? And every time I hear a drummer in a funk band, it's Jeff. And, you know, it's Willie Weeks or Abel Boreal or Chuck Rainey on bass with all of those tracks. And some of those guys, of course, are still playing. You know, I mean, Lee Sklar is still, yeah. you know, working with Phil Collins when Phil works, you know. Um, they're still there. They're the biggest influence to the music. And that's why we're chatting today because it's all about the fact that I was there at that time working with those guys and I saw it yeah. firsthand and it was it was incredible, you know, and every now and then I'll have a chat with someone like Boz Gags about the old days and we'll just say, man, were we lucky. We just had the school of rock in those days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned Lee Sklar just before. He, I don't know he's if you've beauty. seen I don't know if you've seen his uh, – he's got a YouTube series where he just – Yes, I do, yeah. He did something on – funny enough, he did something on Can't Stop Loving You, yeah. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he has to say nice things about the Phil version, but it's it's not the way it was written. Um, but, yeah, that's you know, what he, yeah, but that's, that's cool. Right. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. But I love yeah. working with he used to drum he had a drummer, Russ Kunkel, who yeah. always played with with Lee. They did a lot of the James Taylor, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt records. Um Peter Asher used to use them as the go to team, the two of them. And boy, when they played together, they were tight. And he's a oh, he's a lovely the, character, Lee. Oh, what's the name of their Waddy Wachtel? Yeah, well, Waddy, Waddy, and Waddy and Lindsay Buckingham right. um, used the. T- I mean, Richard set it up. I didn't really know much of Waddy, um, but I knew Lindsay uh, from Fleetwood Mac, um, and they became my two guitarists when we did a an album was basically mostly country. The third one I did with Richard in 1978 called just called Leo Sayre because nobody could think of a title, but that's got "Can't Stop Loving You" on it, and. Um, you know, which has got Lee and Waddy, um, and and Raining My Heart, um, and La Bougaruga, which was um, Andy Fairweather Lowe's song. Um, it's got some cool tracks on it. And we did a, a Jackson Brown song, just me and Lindsay together, called Something Fine. He's doing all the acoustic and I'm doing the vocals. And, and that was a beautiful thing, working with him. And Waddy and I are still great mates. Every time he comes to Australia, we hang out, we spend a couple of days together, we we go and eat ice cream and walk on the beach and things like that. And yeah. and whenever I'm in whenever I'm in LA, I'm always in Waddy's band. You know, um, there's a couple of guys 
um, from, you know, and, and sometimes Keith Richards turns up, which is really cool. So I get to <laughs> hang or play a harmonica with Keith, which is one of my great thrills because nobody plays the blues like, like Keith. Mm. You know, man, he's just great. The Section, that's the name of their group, The Section. The Section, the section is the group, yeah. Yeah, I had to yeah. go- I had to Google that while you were talking. Yeah, Mike, Mike was- Campbell used to come down and play with us as well, which is, I think, and I've got a feeling that's how he got the nod for Fleetwood Mac because, you know, being close to Waddy, who was close to Stevie, uh, uh, you know, um, um, so it, 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 it got a feeling that's how Mike got in there because Mike used to play with the section. Boy, what a guitarist he is. Mm. You know, famed for the Tom Petty stuff and everything, but but a great artist in his own, a great songwriter in his own right. You know, as as Tom always pulled him up, to, you know, to be. Um, he always said, you know, without Mike, I wouldn't have done a lot of these songs. If you follow Mike's blog; it's really good. Mike Campbell, that is absolutely fantastic. And every day he comes up with something different, and he just plays these lovely, um, soulful old guitars and and. Uh, an amazing musician, pretty good singer as well. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you said you did those those couple of albums, two, three albums with, with that sort of group of musicians. So what what changed where you couldn't get those guys back for the, well, for the next albums? Well, we kind of did um, okay. because, um, well, Richard Perry just got, you know, he always gets itchy. If he's not having hits, then you're out, you know. I only want to work with people who have hits. Oh, right. Until, you know, just that kind of mentality. That was cool. We did three albums. Cost me a fortune as well because he had to get, you know, his producer's share and everything like that. Mm. And I think that when we got to 1978, 76 we did an album, 77 we did an album, 78. We always did it at his studio as well, Um, Studio 55, Melrose um, in in L.A., Um, and I, I think both of us needed a change, you know. And in 1979, my old co-writer, David Courtney, had come over to America for a few years by that time. And he'd been making some great records. He'd been producing people. He turned into quite a producer. I mean, he was co-producer on the early stuff with me. And suddenly his right-hand man, um, a, a, a Duck Dunn and, and Steve Cropper. <laughs> so... When they asked me, all of them together, Leo, would you like to come and do an album with Dave producing? I went, shit, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because I knew Duck and, 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 and Steve were going to be on it. You know, Booker T and the MGs, um, yeah, yeah. You know, the great, the great um, string pullers of Booker T and the MGs. So, the stacks, so, uh, stacks, guys. So we made an album. I brought Steve Lukather and Jeff into that album as well. Um, and, um, yeah, and Abe played on a few tracks. Chuck Rainey I brought in as well, and Ray Parker Jr. Ray, Ray and I wrote a, a few songs, you know, for, for – we ended up putting one on the album, but we wrote quite a few songs together. Ray was starting Radio, his band then, at that time, and just before he, of course, hit Pay Dirt with Ghostbusters. Um, you know, so uh, – and, uh, and then, uh, you know, Ray's another one, and just an amazing – Amazing player. Ray is the guitarist on, you know, I Wish It Would Rain, The Temptations. On He was Stevie Wonder's guitarist for many, many years in Stevie's band. Um, you know, live I had Reggie McBride in my band as well who was from Stevie's band who, who who's the bass player on Superstition, you know, and, and all of those tracks. So, so there's this alumni of really great players. Um, 
we had I brought in Billy Payne, my old mate from Little Feet, uh, for that album here as well. That uh, and Al Cooper, we had Al Cooper, right. you know, the Al Cooper, you know, he wrote a song for me on that for that album, and and you know, so I, I, the next album I did with, even though it's not very well known, it's called Here. Came out in 1979. The list of musicians on that album is as good as anything from the Richard Perrys. And then the next album I did, well, I went back to England and I worked with Alan Tarney. We did more than I can say, um, you know. And, and of course, that that went very, very well. But that was a different kind of way of recording because Alan mostly played all the instruments himself. We did it all in England. And then I get a call from Warner's and a Reef Mardin wants to work with me. Wow, you know, this is the guy who produced my favourite artist of all time, Donny Hathaway, and yeah. and also with Aretha and the team with Jerry Wexler and everything. And so I meet with Arif, who's an incredibly intelligent man, the guy who produced the Beach Boy, the Bee Gees, you know, um, Staying Alive and everything. Um, and 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 he's also he also made the first records of Danny O'Keefe and John Prine. So this guy had so much width in his ability. He, he Chaka Khan uh, was his neighbour staying downstairs. He made all the Rufus records. You know, I mean, how many records did Arif make, you know? So suddenly, and, and at this time in my life, I was really interested in making records myself. So I was going to learn from the master. And I told him that at the start. I said, Arif, I want to be around at every moment of this record. And I want to pick on some of your your skills. And he said, that's great. We got on really, really well. So I used to sit with him. We'd have dinner and he'd talk about how I was going to comp this vocal or how he was going to kind of like mix this drum part with something else he'd thought of and how he was going to arrange the strings. And, you know, so I was in the inside track. I've got to say my, my record called World Radio that I made in 83 with a reef, again, which had Steve and, and Jeff and, and all the usual faces on it, um, that record, you know, for me was my learning curve of how to be a producer. And he didn't mind, he showed me everything. You know, he showed me everything. Introduced me to some of the greatest engineers at Atlantic Studios. We made half the record at Sunset Sound. Um, you know, I, I got to work with uh, Michael Jackson's uh, engineer, you know, and uh, I worked with some amazing people through and met some amazing people through a reef, you know. Um, you know, and, 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 had incredible singers on there as well. Um, you know, um, remember that record, Shakespeare's Sister? You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. The girl, Mar Marcella Detroit, who also wrote um, Marcy Levy, as she originally was. Um, she was my BV on that. And uh, there's never been a higher, higher singer. You know, she had a voice that is just like, wow, about 50 yeah. octaves above me. So yeah. I learned a lot from her as well. Marcy became a great friend. She wrote, um, um, uh, Lay Down Sally for Eric Clapton. Is it so right? So she was a great songwriter as well, yeah. yeah. Wow. She was a groovy guitarist as well. Nobody ever saw that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She still yeah, is. I was lucky just to, you know. Oh, man. Sounds like you made, sounds like you made your luck though. I mean, <laughs> yeah. maybe at the start you might think it was luck, but um, you kept producing, man, like that. Yeah. These people are, aren't going to come work for you if they, if they didn't think you're yeah, any but good. I, but, I think, but I think a lot of the relationship with people is about friendship, conversation, yeah, generosity, um, gratitude. Yeah, 
um, expressing all that, communicating is terribly important. And, and, I, and I've got to say, all the while I was working with these great players, I'd have to add Greg Fillingaines and, hmm. you know, a, a, a few other great people as well. All the time I was working with them, we were friends. We'd yeah. hang out, you know. They weren't just guys who turned up for a session. You know, there were there were there were mates. You know, I'd go and get drunk with David Page. You know, and 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 we'd share a lot of things. He'd play me his songs, and you know, I'd play him mine. I put him together with Bernie Torpin, who you know wrote the lyrics for Elton John, and we, you know, I had David and 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 and, and Bernie writing songs for Alice Cooper. Would you believe? You know, so <laughs> which they did. You know, yeah. so so there were all sorts of interesting connections there. You know. I got to work with great arrangers like Gene Page and Paul Buckmaster, uh, you know, um, also in that in that thing. So, you know, the the levels of it all. And, you know, I remained friends with Richard right up until uh, the last time I, I was in L.A. You know, I, I went down to Richard's house and we talk about the old times again. So it's all – I think it's all about having relations. How about treating people well, you know? Yeah, yeah. I love the guys. See, here's the thing. My first manager, Adam Faith, told me one thing that I've never forgotten. Never be friends with musicians. They're the scum of the earth. They play for you and that's it. So I vowed at that moment to be different. And I have been different all my life. And got to tell you, my best friends in the world are people like Mark Kennedy, Elliot Henshaw, my drummer in England, you know, um, uh, Dave Day, my guitarist over there, Paul Burton, my guitarist here, you know. They're my mates, Mitch Cairns, um, you know, uh, Bill Risby. They're, they're, they're my mates. They're, the, they're my best friends. We relate to each other. Mm. And that friendship always gets me guaranteed incredible performances from all the people who play with. Yeah. They step up their, their game, you know, when they play with me. They, they don't shirk. They don't just give me their money's worth. They give me 150%. And that's because we're friends. And I do the same thing for them any day. So the most important people in your lives could be your lovers, but they're also your musicians. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Nicely said. What prompted your move to Australia? Well, I always loved it out here. Um, and I think I'd got corralled in England into something that, you know, I mean, England, the, the British music scene is all about here today, gone tomorrow. You know, send me someone new. This one's finished. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's a turnover. And right. and I was very much saddled with, oh, he's from the 70s. You know, we wouldn't give him a record deal today. And I wanted to carry on making music. Um, I had new songs, new things I wanted to do. And I could do that in Australia because I'd come down here and play people some new songs and they go, great, let's go in the studio. Whereas I'd go into England and say, yeah, nah, you've had all your hits, Leo. Mm, I don't see it. You know, it wasn't even as if... They're listening to the music, you know. The funny thing is they're right. kind of just – they're just putting you into a box. And that's really sad, but that's how it is, you know. And, it, um, and it's still like that, is it? Still, yeah, still very much, yeah. you know. Um, mm. It's it's a boys' club there, you know. Okay. If you don't know – if you don't hang out at Elton John's house or Bob Geldof's house, forget it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Particularly for pop stars, you know. I mean, I'm not yeah. talking musician now. I'm talking, you know, a celebrity. So the celebrity thing is very much judged on um, who you hang with and all that sort of stuff. And honestly, I'm too busy making music most of the time. I don't have time for all that shit. So, um, <laughs> but, but I got to a point, yeah, in 2003, I think it was, where I thought, 
where am I going? You know, I'm, I'm now headed, in, I'm in my 60s and I, I, I want to do something with my, my life, you know, or just coming up to 60. And I, and I thought, you know, if I go to Australia where people love me, I can reinvent myself down there. And that's what I did. And that's what I have done. And I've found I've never been as busy in my life and I've never felt so motivated, you know, because what Australia has brought me, apart from great music scene, I mean, mm. let's not deny this. You know, Australia has the most incredible music scene. I mean, talent, talent here. I mean, Russell Morris, Jimmy, Joe Camilleri. Oh, my God, it just goes on. Jeff Duff, you know, um, the talent here is ridiculous, and that's because it's a very positive place. Also because I think there's space here, so people can dream big and get away with it. They don't, they're not hemmed in by, oh, no, I'd never do that, you know, that kind of <laughs> thing. <laughs> the, English, the English definitely, oh, no, 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 not me, not me, no. So here's a take-a-chance place, you know, and you see that from all the bands, you know, for, that have been here from like Midnight Oils to 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 Skyhooks to, you know, <laughs> bands that just took incredible risks, you know, and just did something, shocked themselves in every, and that's what we were doing when I started off. So why not be in the place where all that happens? You know, that's what I was doing with the Piero in 1973. You know, you're going and doing something that nobody expects. And you're doing it in a completely different way. Oh, I'm going to turn off that phone. Sorry. <laughs> so sorry about that. That, that sounded so, like it was that sounded like it was ringing on every device out well, of every speaker. I, I think it's linked through to this this laptop. Yeah. You know, yeah, uh, I tend to <laughs> I tend to deaf it in the studio, but this time yeah, I didn't. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so I, th I think the vibrancy here is what attracted me. And I do love Australia and I love Australians and I think my character is very Australian in some ways. So, yeah, I'm probably prouder of being a citizen here than I am in England, especially yeah, after Brexit. <laughs> oh, yeah, jeez. So, so how's that going to affect you now, Brexit? Well, yeah, they're saying there's been a new ruling that, I mean, if I go back and do this Irish tour, uh, any truck over 3.5 tonnes, I don't know how many kilos that is, but we can try and work it out and sort of estimate. It's a small, a small truck, you know. Mm. Any truck that size or over is only allowed to drop off twice out in any place in Europe. That's Ireland is Europe, you see now. So um, our Irish tour, the guys can't unload the – they can only unload the gear and load it up twice. Actually, they can only do it – yeah, they can only do two loads. So they'll load into one gig and load it out. So I'm going to have to use pickup equipment. And we don't do that. We take a lot of dedicated, we take our own consoles, own microphones. You know, the guys take all their, we bring all the guitarists, amps and everything. So I don't know how the hell we're going to do it, you know. So it's, it's, it's not a good prospect at the moment. I think things have to get very well sorted, but probably will do. But at the moment, this stupid government has just left musicians in the lurch. But then our government over here isn't much better, is it? I mean, you know, mm. um, the, the, the arts are the most ignored factor. Yeah. I mean, Australia is all about sport, isn't it? It's not, yeah. you know, it's not about us guys. But I think we bring more revenue in than sports people. They mm. certainly do in England. The mm. English music business is huge. I mean, you have to factor in the Beatles and the Stones and people like that and Paul McCartney and Elton John. But, you know, the English music industry puts more into the economy than any other industry because there's no manufacturing anymore. So how can you ignore them? 
And the film industry is, I mean, everything, actors, writers, it's crazy. And the same in Australia, the same parallel. Here we have, you know, incredibly talented people who are not only in music, but in all of the arts that are just being left out. I suppose the problem is that people in the arts usually are a little bit more left-wing. So when you've got right-wing governments, they don't want anybody questioning them. So they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll stymie us guys and, um, yeah, there you go, end up with Ted Nugent. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And Mike Love, um, the Beach Boys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why Joe Biden having Lady Gaga, you know, I'm not a Lady Gaga fan, but I can understand how important that is because she is such a Democrat and she's a good girl for doing that. So Biden is going to have her singing at the inauguration. You see the way it kind of bends, don't you, you know? Right. (laughs) What's your take on social media and and how have you um, embraced it? And were you you resistant to it at the start? Never, never. Never, cool. I'm a communicator. Cool. So I'm, I'm a communicator. I, I, I want to share my ideas with everybody. I get my adrenaline from landing ideas on other people and, and, and if you like, um, communicating and listening and, you know, uh, I lie in bed at night not able to go to sleep and I'm on Twitter and poor Donald Trump. I mean, you know, it's so sad. <laughs> no, no. Fucker. No, man. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> you can keep that in. Um, yeah, I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, I'm, I'm all, I, I watch the world through that, you know, and, yeah, and I yeah. think it's wonderful. Not just music, but I think it's, yeah. it's fantastic. But we do have a chance to express ourselves when, you know, you might know some guy down the road who's going to play his keyboard or guitar and, you know, and he's always dreamed of being a pop singer. Well, he can go on to bloody YouTube now and do it, you know, and he can share something. And who knows? He may get so many hits. It's a better option than bloody pop idol or all that rubbish, you know. I hate the voice and all those shows because that's all synthetic. It's all, you know. That was another question I had. (laughs) The guy can sing or or play his guitar because there'll be someone behind the screen. He's miming to them, you know. Uh, I, I don't trust those shows at all. That's just television bullshit, you know, really. Yeah. But I, so I think social media has been fantastic. How many great bands have we seen come up through social media? Great bands, like really groovy, fantastic musicians that have put projects together. I can't name anybody off my off my head, but um, yeah. off the top of my head. But you know the ones I'm talking about. And we see them come up, and all of a sudden, you know, we love what they do, and they're even going on tour out of that, and. And they were just a bunch of guys that decided to, you know, let's not st- you know, let's not bother to talk to a record company. Let's just make the film ourselves and yep. put it out ourselves, you know. So I think that that direct side, social media is so important. I think it's a part of our lives, very important. Those people that knock it are people who don't understand it. They don't understand how to use it and they don't understand that it can be abused. Of course it can be abused. You have to accept in life that there are as many bad things as good things. We, we love cars, but cars kill people as well, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> what do you do? Do you say, I don't love cars because my neighbour got run down? No, we carry on. We work with it and we make the best we can for ourselves out of it. So Facebook and Twitter, I think they're great vehicles. YouTube, Pandora in America. Um, um, I'm on a, I've got my own Spotify artist playlist and it's fantastically yeah. powerful. Because, you know, they give me a report on how much I'm 
getting seen. And of course, with getting My City in lockdown, how did we get here? Those tracks out this year. Um, uh, so so um, I've been seeing the feedback. The feedback's amazing. It's keeping me alive. It's, it actually affects my record sales. My record sales have gone huge since social media has been out there because oh, I've used great. it. That's fantastic. No, I think it's really that's- good. I think we should all be really positive about it. It ain't killing live music. You know, live music is being killed by coronavirus at this moment anyway, but it's not killing live music. It actually makes people want to see it more and experience it more. I don't. I think the two things go together. It's not, I mean, if it's killing the record business, maybe that's not a bad thing actually in the current <laughs> model because it needs to change, you know. It needs to kind of be more all-inclusive. You know, engineers and producers and musicians need to get paid as well as artists. That's one thing, very important. Yeah. And that is starting to happen because musicians and, and engineers and producers are taking the, the business into their own hands. So this is good. If you were in charge of Spotify, <laughs> right, what would you do to change that model to benefit artists? Well, I, I'd say to my shareholders, you've made enough money now, it's time to give some back. <laughs> That's the yeah. first thing because we have seen that, that, that there's some very, very ridiculously wealthy people. I don't think another Ferrari is going to help them do the job better. Um, so I would say give a little bit more back. And, and, and I think that those, those platforms could be sponsoring artists as well. And that I think would be really good. I'd like to see Spotify maybe having a competition kind of element to it. So, you know, new bands of the week, the, the, the one that gets the most feedback, the most plays, that is an unsigned band, should then be, be given a bit of a budget to make better music, you know, or, or better facilitate, make it easier for them to make their music for the next month. And so the competition rolled. And I think that would be really good. And I, ha- I don't see that element in there. I don't see that backing, you know, in there. And maybe to create, um, you know, because of music is so many genres, I mean, we think that jazz is, is important, but, you know, where are the new Paul, Pat Matheny's? You know, and they're they're out there, but there's no platform for them. You know, there's no labels for them. So I think that Spotify and 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 those kind of companies could split themselves up to help the the outside genres, genres. You know, indie rock and punk and things like that that are all still being made. Folk, you know, folk music, acoustic music, jazz. You know, um, um, you know, really old style music. You know, like old blues. You know, they could be they could be factoring in, labelling all of that and getting that a better platform, getting it out there, you know, what's going on and what's good. Unfortunately, I think the problem with a lot of these platforms is that they are not now, just like record companies, being run by music people. They're being run by accountants or people who want to get rich quick, you know what I mean? So, so they have to actually get their A&R shit together, and I think that's the first thing I'd do. I'd get um, a David Geffen or someone like that instantly involved in those platforms and put some real A&R. There's a great guy called Ted Cohen that I used to work with in Warners in America, and shit, they should be getting him in there. You know, he'll tell them what's a good act and what's a good act, that, what's, a, what's an act that would develop as well. That's an important thing. Nobody's talked about artist development for many years, and that's really sad because we had A&R people artists and repertoire, 
in record companies who would help us get better and better at making the music and helping us reach our mission and make better and better records as we went on. That's what I had around me. And that helped me, you know, over the, since the nineties, I had nobody um, and I was flailing. So I had to reinvent myself as we all have had to do. But I think it would be great for young artists coming out today if they knew that there was someone who was going to guide them and help them to get really good. Because the quality is important, you know. You want to have guitarists that can play like the edge, you know. You want to have, <laughs> you want to have, you know. I mean, that thing he does with the thick pick. You want to have yeah. people who know technique, and you want to see that passed on. And you know, I would, I would have Brian the edge straight in there as an A and R man, straight away, right. instant, no, no talk. I'd have Ry Cooder in there as an A and R man, you know. Yeah. I'd have Randy Newman in there, you know, people like that, you know. Terence, uh, sorry, Trent Reznor, you know, people like that. You oh, have them yeah. in there straight away, man, because they're the people that know Mike Campbell. You know, they, they know what it takes to make great music and how adventurous and how brave and how good you have to be, you know, and how you have to learn your craft. Mm. There's no excuses. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about the 90s and that was that was a bit of a tough era for you and, went through some legal stuff and yeah. all that, which which we don't have to get into. But how did you how did you pull yourself out of that oh. state? How did, did you did you did you know all that stuff? Did you feel it sort of coming yeah, towards course, the end of the Of course. Every artist okay. every artist gets abused in some way. I mean, you know, my original mm-hmm. manager who I always sing the praises of also ripped me off rottenly. You know, Adam Faith stole money from me from day one really and and um you know, also, dis- I mean, you know, one time he, I heard that he burnt all the multi-tracks so that nobody could remix my stuff. Actually, it hasn't, that hasn't turned out to be a bad thing because I don't have to, have to live with all terrible remixes of my, my songs. And the only ones that they can remix, they have to use the original, you know, two tracks. So Thunder in My Heart Again, you know, that remix that came out, went to number yeah, one. Yeah. In- that, you did it right yeah. out of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, was, that was very cleverly made from just... A stereo recording, you know. So um, things added to it, a bit slowed down, you know, filtering and all that sort of clever stuff. So um, I don't know. Um, It's it's tricky to come up with the absolute answers to a lot of these questions, you know, because when you're being ripped off and when you're being um, sort of destroyed, um, and 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 prevented from working as I was in the nineties. I couldn't afford to do anything. Right. I was almost bankrupt, you know, for taking on lawyers that were bloody useless anyway, and trying to sort of fix contracts which were unfixable. I should have, if I'd have known now, in hindsight, I'd have just packed everything up, walked away, retired for six months, and then come back. That would have been the most sensible thing: pack up all the companies, get out of there, you know, and then just make some music right. in the background and then come back, you know, kind of. Which is basically, when you think of it, Cat Stevens, you know, reinventing himself as a Muslim artist. That's what he's done, you know, yeah. and he did that. Um, you know, who's the South African singer that they love so much over here? Uh, uh, well, no, they love him from South Africa. South American guy um, who did the songs all about dope and everything. Oh, God, what's this? They made the movie about him. Um, searching for Sugarman. Sugarman. Yeah, you know that guy? Yeah. See, someone like that just goes missing and then they come back, you know, 
you don't try, and I tried to carry on with all these people and that was stupid. So sometimes you can't see the wood for the trees. But I think the way I did deal with it, so I just went back to songwriting and, um, you know, created music. And, uh, you know, that's, um, Selfie is full of a bunch of the songs on Selfie, of what I came up with in the 90s and couldn't get a record deal for. So, you know, you get your revenge in the end. There's yeah. a song under the surf, I remember, you know, and I remember this A&R guy in England just saying, look, it's an absolute crap song. It just says nothing, goes nowhere. And, you know, just um, when I was putting that track out um, last year or the year before, everybody said, oh, my God, what a song. So I knew that at the time. So you you have to, what is it Bob Marley said, you've got to push on through, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no woman, no cry. you got to push on through. <laughs> and you you do have to push on through. You have to have incredible belief in yourself in this business. As a singer, as a musician, as an artist, you know, you just have to have amazing belief. If you know you're good, you know you're good. Yeah. Yeah, true. They can't tell you you're not. And eventually you will get your way. Patience is a virtue, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But I'm sitting, I'm sitting good now, you know. I mean, I can I've nobody telling me what to do. I've just done a I've just done one of those rights deals that you're hearing Neil Young has done and Bob Dylan's done. I'm sharing my royalties with an American company. I'm not going to tell you the sums and the and yeah, the figures and, and the deal, but I gotta tell you it's it's left me very comfortable. Um and plus, do I wanna, you know, do I I'd rather have them, they're gonna push me very hard in America. And I'd rather have them pushing than just sit here waiting for the royalties to come in. So I'm I'm quite happy to share that with them. It's a company called Primary Wave. They just um, uh, signed um, um, Stevie Nicks as well, and uh, the, almost at the same time they've got Bob's catalogue. Um, they've got some Ray Charles. They've got some amazing, uh, amazing catalogues, you know, and they really work these catalogues because they have outside investors who really want to make money out of us artists. So the impetus ah, is good when you think about excellent. it. And the yes. other thing is the reason why big names like Neil and Bob have signed up to do this thing is that the Americans Patents Office want to kind of steal all our copyrights and make them in, put them in the public domain. So I think Bob, looking at his life's work, didn't want to see that happening. So he's done a partnership with Universal, which I think is very good, and he will always be the rights holder for Bob Dylan. And uh, probably he can probably now afford to buy the state of California, and I wish he would. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's fantastic! That's really cool. Now, you you um you talked earlier on, and I also read it as well that that you were into mm. art and and um yep. graphic design and that that kind I of stuff. I do a lot of record cover designs. You know, Bob Marley that's and exact- what, did many of those. That's that was my question. Have you ever used that? That those art skills to design album covers or sleeves or yeah, I'll still get like I, I mean I still get involved in it now um, yeah selfie I did I think um, the cover of yeah yeah I, I did all that by myself and I got a, a, an artist friend of mine to help finish off and some of the guys at Demon Records in England the record company I use um, they've got some good guys up there so you know they 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 helped. Put it together. They got a little design studio, and they're good friends of mine. The guys I met them last time I was in London. They said, "Anything, Leo? Just throw it over to us. We can. We understand what you're trying to do." <laughs> so, you know, I'm a rank amateur compared with the the techniques that they use these days. 
But I, I, I can put it together, you know, get the photographs done and all that stuff, yeah. Do you, do you still like to draw? I can't draw anymore, you know. Um, okay. Since that nervous breakdown that I mentioned, I think that um, mm. I lost the ability to do it. I, I, I went uh, white paper blind, as they call it, very much of the time. But I, I take photographs all the time and I'm, I've still got my eye, I guess, you know, my compositional, um, uh, visual compositional sense is as good as it ever was. And, um, and I love designing stuff, but I can't really be a freeform artist any longer. That all left me. But I, is but it, I, one that, time I was an illustrator, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what, that's what I'm saying. Um, so when you say, what did you say? What did you call it? White, white paper blind? White, white, white paper blindness. Yeah, you look at a white sheet of paper and you go, oh, I'm going to have a blackout. <laughs> oh, I've never heard that before. So do you yeah, think yeah. that but, uh, because, because you had that nervous breakdown, when you have that thought of going to draw something, it takes you back to that? Yeah, yeah. That emotion, but, but that emotional feeling. Is that a, a creative brain um, will will find, especially over a long period of time. Look, it's fifty years next year since the very first record. Um, over a long period of time, you will diversify and you will find different strings. Like you're doing a podcast now, and I bet yeah. you know your usual job is playing, right? Yeah. Yeah. But now you know you find yourself kind of moving into another area. Yeah. And, you know, other areas, and we all do that. So I guess suddenly the need to make music was greater than the need to paint art. Okay. You know, and that kind of took over. And the need to express myself by writing songs rather than, you know, say do abstract paintings or something or write poetry, you know, the need to write songs was suddenly really banging on my ear. I, I just I couldn't think of anything else I needed to do more. I think need is a good word, you know. Because sometimes, you know, you have the choice to do anything you like when you're a creative person. Yeah. And honestly, I've been self-employed all my own, all my life. Right. I've never really ever worked. I've taken few pay slips home in my life. Wow. I've always been my own boss. So you've got this dilemma of what am I going to do today, you know, <laughs> that, like the taxi crab who, driver, you know, who gets up in the morning and he owns his cab and he owns his business and he says, do I feel like driving today? Yeah, but if he doesn't feel like it, he actually can take a day off. Yeah. You know, to be your own boss is a fantastic thing. And I feel for anybody who has to be the boss, that has to be bossed around by anybody else because <laughs> that's, my, that's my world. I'm, I'm, but I've, I've had to work hard, you yeah. know, over the years, especially the early years, to, to, to get that right to be my own boss, you know. Sure. So that makes you very disciplined. That's what I'm trying to say. And I think I'm a very disciplined person. I know that if I've got to do something, it's no good lying in bed. It's not going to fix it. So, so um, it's made me very active, yeah. um, and I, I've, I've achieved. I realise I'm writing my book about it all at the minute, and I'm yep. about ninety-five thousand words in, and I'm only in nineteen eighty-six. Um, I've still <laughs> you've gone, you've gone, go. you've gone back, you've gone backwards because I was listening to a um, uh, another <laughs> podcast that you're on, and you'd gone, you were at nineteen ninety-two. So you must have yeah, written yeah. down a few chapters, have you? Oh, no, 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 back? I, no I, I was researching up to 92. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, I've done all okay. the research and I've done uh, laid it all out, but I'm detailing into 1986. Because okay. the funny thing is every now and then I discover one of my old musicians and I'll I'll do a Zoom meeting with him and, and, yeah. and you know, my old drummer, Stephen Jackson, for a lot of the time I was in, with him in England, and he set me right on a few things that I'd forgotten. So, you know, I've been going back into that and going, oh, 
no, it was him that we took, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I want to try and get it as accurate as possible and that's yeah. that's important, you know. If, do you have a, an idea on when you might get that finished? Have you got a, a plan yeah, for that? Yes, really I'm looking at the next uh, two, three months. Um, oh, wow. I'm just finishing off this Beatles album project I was telling you about, Northern Songs. We're nearly finished. We're in the last three songs now. I've just got to deliver them to John for mixing. Um, and I've just about done all the parts. So as soon as I, and that's another week and a half away, I think, or two weeks away, then of course we'll have to, you know, observe the mixes and master it and everything and make sure we're happy. But I'm going to be getting onto the book again in about two weeks. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. And I'm doing a lot of research in the background because I always think of something and go, hey, what was that time we had that surfing guy over to the Middle East and he showed everybody up? He was one of our roadies. And then I asked somebody about it. Oh, now that was Bruce. He's now the head of Westlake Sound in America. And I go, what? <laughs> you know, so it's amazing how like all these, you know, a lot of the people that were in my life um, have become huge successes all over the world, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, so, so it's a journey of discovery. Rediscovering your life is fascinating. I recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm looking forward to reading the the start of the yes. 2021 chapter because there'll be that part about this. Uh, yeah, definitely. There's this part, this part, this podcast I went on in the early kicked off my year going on the yeah. Gig Life podcast yeah. with Stevie Taylor. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm thinking of doing one myself soon. I've had a Great. few offers of. Uh, there's a French company that's got its own. You can have your own channel and everything. Um, Lumiere or something like that. So, yeah, awesome. you know, they've offered me some sort of deal on it, but it's just finding the time to do it. At the minute, yeah. I'm just every waking moment, I'm at the at the control desk or the keyboard, you know, working out or, or at the microphone, working out the end of this project that I'm recording at the moment. But, yeah. you know, you get stuck on one thing. But um, I, I'm, I, I think that I could tell my stories. It would be quite interesting. And also maybe talk to other people, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that's cool. It's an interest. Look, we're all communicating. What you're doing there is just fantastic, man. Thank you. It's man. really good, and it's 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 um it's a great conduit for musicians at this time as well because a lot of us that you know are stuck and stymied for what to do next, you know. But I'll send you some people. That'd be great. Yeah, That'd man. Great. If you need a co- if you need a co-host for the Leo Sayer um podcast, you you got the gig already. Yeah, yeah well, awesome. <laughs> and if you need. <laughs> <laughs> Going on today's performance, yeah, yeah man. Yeah. Oh, nice, awesome. This is my audition. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we realise we talked for about three hours now. Uh, yeah, about an hour forty. Oh no, because we talked uh, for about we spent half an hour trying to get the tech right. Get oh, that's true. To- true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right off, just like yeah. every production that one does, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like when you're playing the drums, it took them four hours to get the mics in the right position. Then we only yeah. had four minutes left to play. <laughs> And then, and then another two hours to wait, for, two hours for the bass player to tune his bass. <laughs> oh, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get the wife out of the studio. Yeah, um, that's it. <laughs> Leo Sayer, man, thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, it's I've been had a blast. My, my pleasure. I've really enjoyed every minute. Thank you for sharing your your, your stories and, um, man, looking forward to. Let me know when this is put together and I, I'd love to, I'll share it with lots of people as well. Brilliant, man. That'd be great. Onwards and upwards. All right, Leo. Thanks, my man. Thanks so much. Cheers, mate.